If you've got a Bible, open to Luke chapter nine. Is where we're gonna be this morning as we wrap up this series entitled Follow Me. Luke chapter nine, we'll begin in verse 51 and we'll read down through verse 62. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you behind me as we read it together. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. As we wrap up this series called Follow Me, what we've seen so far in the course of these four sermons, this is the fifth one in this series, is this, is that what Jesus, when he calls us to follow him, when he calls us to discipleship, when he calls us to come after him, his call is for us to order our everyday lives around the message and mission of Jesus. So not just our extraordinary lives, right, that we all wanna live, but our ordinary lives, our everyday lives around Jesus' message and his mission. And we've seen so far in this series, we've seen four sermons. If you missed them, you wanna catch up on where we are, you can go back on the podcast on SoundCloud uh, or you can check it out on the Apple Podcast app as well. You can find them there. But this morning as we wrap up this series, I wanna kinda tie up something I said at the very beginning of the series. I said at the beginning of the series that our activity as disciples, as followers of Jesus, it doesn't flow uphill toward our identity, doesn't create an identity. You can't do enough to create an identity in Christ, right? But our activity as disciples, it flows downhill from our identity. In other words, if you think of it this way, you don't achieve an identity through your activity, but you express an identity you've received through your activity. You don't achieve it for yourself, you receive it and then express it through how you live, how you conduct yourself, how you order your life. And this morning I wanna lay down a little bit more support and flesh that out for you a little bit more. Um, I I don't know if you're a fan of college athletics. Um, I I tend to watch a little college football on Sundays. Um, But in college athletics, there's two types of athletes on any particular squad. You have scholarship athletes and you have walk-ons, right? And so scholarship athletes, the difference between scholarships and walk-ons are this. Coming out of high school, scholarship athletes tend to be the three, four, and five-star recruits whose skills have been honed to a certain degree, whether it be their physical stature, whether it be their ability to, to, to perform certain activities on the field or on the court. They get honed, and so their three, four, five-star recruits are highly touted and rated, and schools go after them to recruit them because they can run really fast, throw really hard, or jump really high. Okay, so they go after them. And scholarship athletes, they don't earn a place on the team, they're given a place on the team. Like you show up day one, you've got a locker, you've got a jersey, and somebody else has said, let me pay for your education so you will come and play for our institution. Right? So you've got a spot day one that's been given to you. Right? In a scholarship, somebody's paying your way. And so scholarship athletes, they don't earn their jersey, they receive their jersey, 
but they continue to work really hard to prove their worth, like I'm worth the money that I'm being paid to go to this school, right? Or that I, or they aspire to move on to the professional ranks. It's a scholarship athlete. Walk-on athletes, a little bit different, right? They're not three, four, and five-star recruits, they're one and two-star. And if you want to call them recruits, right? They're not, nobody's really recruiting them, right? But they have a passion and a drive and a love for the game. And so whenever they show up on their campus, they, they enroll in classes and they go to the coaches and say, I want to be a part of this team. They say, okay, you got to work really hard. So then they're, they're in the weight room. They're on the field. Extra hours, putting in the effort. And so they work and work and work and work until they hone their skills to such a degree that the coach may come to them or he may not, but he may come to them and say, here's your jersey. You've got a spot now on the team. Here's your locker. Right? You've done enough, you've achieved enough, you've earned enough, you've worked hard enough to ascend, and now you've got your jersey. Scholarship athletes are given a jersey. Walk-on athletes have to earn their jersey whenever they show up on campus. Right? And so they achieve enough to get there. But listen, here's what I want you to know. That within God's kingdom, as a Christian, if you're just kicking the tires on Christianity this morning, or if you've been to multiple churches in different places and been a Christian for most of your life that you can remember, right, I want you to know something, that within God's kingdom, within Christianity, there are no scholarship athletes. Right? There's nobody that God looks down and goes, man, she's a five-star or he's a four star, I really need them on my team, right? So I'm gonna choose them. I didn't look down and go, man, you have some really impressive credentials. In fact, what God does is he looks down and he says, not, not only are you not very impressive, but you're quite offensive, okay, in your sin. And so there's no, there's no high star recruits in Christianity, but I want you to know something, there's also no walk-ons. There's no one who, who, who shows up and says, I'm gonna do really good, I'm gonna try really hard, I'm gonna put in all the work and all the effort, and I'm gonna earn my way up to having this identity. Right? There's nobody in God's kingdom that God says, here's your jersey because you're really impressive, and there's nobody in God's kingdom that says, I'm gonna earn my way up to receiving the jersey from God and be on his team. But within Christianity, there's a third classification of athletes. We don't talk about these much, they're called scrubs. All right? They're called scrubs. And a scrub, right, the walk-ons, man, they couldn't run as fast, they couldn't throw as hard, they couldn't jump as high coming out of high school, but they honed those skills. But scrubs, they can't, they have no vertical, okay? <laughs> they can't jump high at all, right? They, they're 40 times like 17.3 seconds, right? They're just kind of mumbling their way down the track, right? And they can't throw very hard, right? They're, they're, their fastball tops out at 36 miles an hour. And so here you are, right? I'm a scrub, Scrub athlete, but in Christianity, here's what I want you to know, that if you're a Christian in the room this morning, what you are is a scrub on scholarship. That's what you are. That's what Christianity is. Because God doesn't look down and say, there's really high star recruits or there's walk-ons. No, all of us are not very impressive and all of us have sin that's offensive to God, but God in his grace doesn't say you can earn your way up here or you can impress your way to me. What God in his grace does is he looks down and he sees us in our offense to him and he says, that one. That one. You're mine. And he adopts us into his family as sons and daughters and he puts a, a robe on us and a ring on us and he slaughters a calf and he says, this son of mine who was lost is now home. Let's rejoice and celebrate because a sinner has returned to his creator, to his father. See, your identity does not flow uphill or your activity doesn't push you uphill to create an identity to where one day God says, hey, you're in. But God says, you're in, not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done in my son. 
And so all the activity of following Jesus, all the activity of discipleship, it flows downhill from that identity. There's a big difference between those two things. Some of you may have been in churches all of your life where you were told if you do well enough, if you work hard enough, if you achieve, then you can climb the ranks up to God. Not, you weren't told God has come down the stairs to you to rescue you who could do nothing to impress him or earn your way into his presence. That's Christianity. I'm a scrub on scholarship and so are you. You with me? All right, so as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to look at it through those lenses, right? That it's not, I'm gonna do really good, I'm gonna try really hard, or there's lots of things that impress God about me, and so he's gonna accept me. I want you to look at it through those lenses. No, it's all grace. See, a scrub on scholarship, they realize that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, that sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, and he gave me an identity, he gave me a standing, he gave me a position in Christ, and out of that flows this gratitude by which I come after him and follow him because there's no one else to whom you can go who has the words of life. So in Luke chapter nine, as we wrap this series up, here's what I want us to see this morning is that for some of us, there are, there are, um, there, there, there are, there are first place things in our lives that either keep us from starting the journey of discipleship or there are first place things in our lives that stall us out somewhere along the way in our journey of discipleship. Because discipleship is a journey. See, in verse 51, I want you to notice something. In verse 51 of Luke 9, Luke writes this. He says that Jesus' time had come and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus' time had come. If you go to John's gospel, Jesus realizes at some point his hour had not yet come and then he realizes his hour has come and so he does certain things. That's Luke's way of saying the same thing. His time had come. In other words, his time had come to go to Jerusalem to be, to be betrayed, to be tried, to be crucified and to be buried. That's the time that had come for Jesus. And so he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And what that means is this, is that Jesus with this determination and resolve begins to move toward the completion of the mission for which his father had sent him. He begins to move toward Jerusalem. And I want you to notice something. As he begins to move toward Jerusalem, sets his face in that direction along the way, what he does is he begins to teach people around him what it means to follow him. Now when you look at Luke's gospel, I want you to know that, that Jesus being on the way to Jerusalem, teaching people about what it means to follow him, that's not incidental information that Jesus just happens to be passing through here and passing through here and passing through here so he stops down, teaches for a little bit, and then he keeps moving. What Luke is trying to say to us is this, is that what it means to follow Jesus is to journey with him. Discipleship is a journey. It's not a destination. It's a journey as you follow Jesus. Right? And listen, discipleship also doesn't mean that, you, that it's a journey where Jesus comes alongside of you, right? right? Here are my dreams, Jesus. Here are my goals, Jesus. Here's my agenda for my life, Jesus. Here are my purposes. Jesus, why don't you come on alongside and buddy up with me? We can lock arms and we can just fulfill all those things. No, Jesus says, if you're gonna journey, you're journeying along my path, not yours. You're journeying in, in, in my direction. I'm not journeying in yours what it means to follow him. Luke wants, wants to communicate us to that, but there are certain things in our lives that's, that when some people hear the invitation of the gospel, that it's free grace, all grace, Jesus paid it all, they're like, yes! 
And then they come to the song, the part of the song, all to him I owe. Well, uh, I'm not sure about that. And there's some things because our identity has been built around certain things in our lives. Where when it, when it comes to the all to him I owe part, we say, well, hold, hold on just a second, Jesus. You ever get that from your kids? Those are your parents, right? You, you, you ask them to do something or tell them to do something. Like I tell my kids sometimes, hey, it's time to go brush your teeth. It's time to go wash your hands, get cleaned up, come to the table. It's time to go to bed, right? It's time to pick up your toys, clean up your, whatever it is. Put your clothes away, all those things. And they're like, hold on a second. And what they're saying is, Dad, I'm in the middle of something right now. If you will just let me finish this, then I will follow through. And in this text, Jesus runs into three hold on a seconds in the lives of people. And they're not only in the lives of people in the New Testament, but in ours as well. And I want us to see them this morning. The first one is this. It's the, it's the but first or hold on a second of comfort. See, some of us have built our lives and our identities around comfort and convenience, particularly in this modern Western American culture. But look what Jesus says in Luke chapter nine, in verse 15, 57, he says, it says, as he was going along the road, he's journeying, they're journeying with him. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I'm gonna run up and volunteer. Jesus, pick me, pick me, I'll go wherever you want. I'll go with you wherever you're going. And Jesus says, hold on, think about that for a second. I want you to know something. That foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man, he has no place to lay his head. What is Jesus saying in that? Jesus reaches back into Daniel, pulls his favorite designation for himself into, the, into, into his life, the son of man. The son of man in Daniel was the one who came before the ancient of days, God the Father, and God the Father said to the one who was like a son of man, all authority, all the kingdoms of the earth are yours. In other words, you have sovereignty and rule over everything. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the son of man, I've created everything and I have no place to call home here. I have no place, I have no luxuries here. I have no trappings here. I have no, I haven't built, my life isn't built around comfort and convenience here. And so the guy, the guy runs up and says, Jesus, pick me, I will go wherever you want. I'll follow you wherever you lead. And Jesus says, think about that for a moment. I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. Because I'm not asking you, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not asking you to come so it can be your season, right? Some of you heard teaching like that, right? You come to Jesus, it's gonna be your season, right? Right? You're going to get that job. You're going to get that raise. You're going to find that spouse. You're going to have all of, of the things that you could possibly want. Your, your life will be re- really padded, right? You've heard that before. But Jesus cuts right through that and he says, no, you're not going to have padding, but you're probably going to have some pain as you follow me. As you follow me. Jesus said, I want you to know what you're getting yourself into. Here I am, I'm, I'm a broke, homeless guy wandering the countryside teaching and I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. You still in? <laughs> That's what he says. See, many of us have built an identity around this, this, the, the trappings of, of modern conveniences and comfort. And, and, and unfortunately, there, 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 there are teachers out there who would want to pander to that. And they will, they will say things to you like, it's going to be your season. You're going to get everything that you want. If you just, everything will fall into line in your life, right? All the flowers will bloom. The hills will always be singing with the sound of music. If you just follow Jesus, that's what it's going to be like, right? It's going to be like skipping through a dewy meadow with Mary Poppins floating down, right, from the skies above. That's what following Jesus is going to be like. And Jesus says, no, no. 
And if you're going to follow me, you have to begin to put to death that identity built around your comfort and your convenience. But second of all, Jesus says, not only is comfort one of the kind of but first, because these next two guys actually use the term but first, right? In other words, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me take care, hold on, if, if I can just finish this, right? If I can just finish my degree, Jesus, then I'll follow you. Right? If I can just get through college, Jesus, then I'll fall. If I just get through high school, Jesus, then I'm all in, right? I'm down, Jesus. Right? If I can just find a boyfriend, Jesus, then I'm in, right? Or if I can just find a spouse, Jesus, then everything I have, all my chips are going to the center of the table at that point, Jesus, then I'm in. And Jesus comes across two other folks who are like, Jesus, I'll follow you, but, but first. And this next one doesn't come up and volunteer to him. The next one comes up and Jesus says, follow me. And, and, and listen to what he says in verses 59 and following. He says, follow me. And the man says, but Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, listen, when, when, when we read that text, it sounds a little bit harsh and mean, doesn't it? At first blush, absolutely. Because some of us are like, man, scratching our heads, thinking, I read in a book somewhere, honor your mother and father, right? But so, so this guy, all this guy's doing is asking to go bury his dad. It's like, it's his dad. Can he go bury his dad? Well, when you, when you, when you understand the cultural context in which, into which Jesus is speaking, it sheds a little bit of light on this for us because here's what's going on. Right? In Jesus' day, listen, consider this, there were no morticians or funeral homes, okay? There wasn't like a place that showed up at the hospice or the nursing home or your home, took your deceased loved one, them to the funeral home, right? Pump them full of all kinds of fluids to make them their body last until uh, not start the decaying process until you can actually put them in the ground. And then you wait five days for all the family to get in town, and and then you do the do the service. That's not what happened whenever somebody died in Jesus' day. They died, and they were in the ground within 24 hours. And until they were in the ground, their family was with them. Their family was around them. Their family was right there at their side. They were all gathered there around the father or mother or brother or sister that they had just lost to death. So if, if this man's dad had actually died, then G, this guy wouldn't even be in a crowd following Jesus somewhere along the road figuring out he's going to Jerusalem. He'd have been at home with his mom. He'd have been at home with his brothers. He'd have been at home with his sisters caring for his father's corpse and comforting his grieving family members. That's where he would have been. And so when you read this, most, most scholars believe this man's dad probably wasn't even dead yet, hadn't died yet, maybe not even been close to death. But here's what, here's what I think is going on. I think in this text, what's, what's happening is this man realizes, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you, but once my dad dies and we get him buried, because if I follow you now, like, like I'm leaving a good Jewish family to come follow this upstart rabbi through the countryside who's saying things that make all the religious people really, really mad. And Jesus, I'm afraid that if I walk out now on my family, that when my dad dies, I will miss out on my part of the inheritance. I will lose my, my future security. And Jesus says, what does he say to him? So it sounds a little harsh, but this is, this is what's going on. Jesus says to him, let the dead bear their own dead. You go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, listen, if you think about following me, even, even the spiritually dead, even those who have no life in God, even those who have not been born again to a living hope, even those who have not been adopted as sons and daughters of God, even those who aren't scrubs on scholarships, right? Even they, 
know how to care for their deceased loved ones. That is not a mark of discipleship. Jesus says a mark of discipleship is choosing me above your security. Choosing me above what lies on the horizon and the uncertainties out there somewhere. Now for us, our sources of security in our day and age oftentimes tend to be places, people, and positions. Our sources of security, places, Some of us have been in places all of our lives and perhaps God is prompting us to make a move or go in a different direction, but we, we have no concept of what it looks like to set out on this journey with Jesus because we're afraid of taking a step outside of what has become known and secure for us. Or, or people, right? We're in a certain circle of people or positions. We have security in our careers and advancement and, and climbing the ladder. And so what we say to Jesus is, Jesus, if you would just let me get this business off the ground first, then I'll follow you. Jesus, if you'll just let me bank a little bit first, then I will begin to give. Jesus, if you'll just let me put enough back to where I can send my kids to college, I can have a comfortable retirement, and then I can live out my days on a beach somewhere, sipping drinks with umbrellas and collecting seashells, then, Jesus, if you can get me to that point, then I'll follow you. Right? But first, Jesus, hold on a second. You're asking me maybe to leave this place that I've been comfortable, I've grown up in all my life and to make a move to where it is that you're prompting me to go because you're you're asking me to follow that thread. Remember last week, I'm following the thread, Jesus, and sometimes you're leading me to these dead ends and empty walls and as you begin to pull down the bricks, all of a sudden there's somebody behind it that God is sending you to be an instrument as he rescues them out of the waters of judgment. Hold on, Jesus, just a second. Because following you, Jesus, means I might give up some sources of security in my life, places, people, or positions. Third, third, Jesus says, not only comfort and insecurity, but also, I want you to consider this as well, approval. The approval of people. Listen to what he says in verses 61 and 62. <coughs> he says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Seems like a reasonable request, right? Let me go home, kiss mama on the cheek, shake shake dad's hand, tell him I'm out the door, right? And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you, you read elsewhere in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 14, when Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship, he says this, he says, Anyone who comes after me, if you want anything to do with me, you must, what, hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple. Now that sounds really hard as well because we're supposed to honor mom and dad, right? Supposed to have a good, healthy self-love, all those things if we're gonna follow Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is this, is if your loyalty and allegiance, your love and affection for me, in comparison to that, your family, does not make your love for your family look like hatred, then you you have no place with me because I'm not first in your life, I'm not first place in your life, but your, your family is first place in your life or their approval is first place in your life. Now listen, back in the Old Testament, um, Elijah and Elisha, right, two different people, right? One, one letter difference, right, J and S, S, right? So Elijah and Elijah, they, Elijah is the prophet of Israel and he walks by and finds Elisha plowing the fields that his family owned and he throws his cloak down. What was he saying? He's like, come and follow me. Be, come after me. I'm gonna be your, your mentor. You'll be my apprentice. You'll be the next prophet in Israel whenever God takes me up in chariots of fire. Right? He didn't know that was gonna happen but, it, but, but that, that's what was gonna happen. Right? 
be the next prophet in Israel. And so Elisha says, hold on a second, let me go home and tell my mother and father goodbye. And Elisha says, sure, go ahead. But when Elisha goes home, I want you to see what he does. If if you go back in 1 Kings, you can find this. When Elisha goes home, he goes home, kisses mom and dad, says goodbye, goes out to the field where there are 12 oxen that he was plowing with, slaughters every single one of them, takes the plow that he was using to turn up the ground, takes it along with all the dead oxen, and he burns them and boils them and feeds all of that to his family, then he leaves. Like, man, that's a little strange. Not sure what's going on there. Here's what's happening. When Elisha goes back, he's not going back to say, mom and dad, will you give me approval? Will you rubber stamp what I'm about to go do as I follow this man and become a prophet? What he's going back to say is, not, not seeking their approval, but just relaying information as because he takes everything that was signified his former way of life of being one who just plowed the fields and he burns it to the ground saying, I'm not going back to that. I'm not going. He doesn't go back seeking their approval. But Jesus looks into this man's heart And he sees that for him to go back, for him to go back, he would be seeking the approval of his mom and dad, of his family. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that word fit sounds like it means he doesn't deserve it. Well, of course he doesn't because we're all scrubs, right? Nobody does. What the word fit really means is this, is useful. Useful in the kingdom of God. Because consider this, in, in their day, there were no tractors with GPS units, right, that you could kind of plot it in, what row you wanted to plow, and you just kind of sat back and kicked on your iPods or a video cast and started watching videos and listening to music as you plowed the field, right? You had ox, you had a plow. Sometimes you didn't have an ox, you just had a hand plow, and you were just drudging up the ground, turning it over and creating rows. And if you look back to see where you had been, then you would eventually veer off, continue to veer off course, and you wouldn't plow a straight row. And Jesus says, that's not useful, It's not useful in the kingdom if you're constantly looking back over your shoulder to look back to the past or to get people's approval about the direction that you're going or the steps that you're taking as Jesus calls you, as Jesus prompts you, as you follow him. So approval is another source of identity for us, security, comfort. I wonder wonder how many times in your life that has kept you from starting the journey with Jesus or has stalled you out on it. Because those things have been first place in your life. Now we could end there, but it would be really sad and you'd go home and just probably cry all afternoon. Um, Or at least I would. But, so we don't want to end there. Because here's what I want you to see. I want you to see something with me because most of us when we think of God's love for us we think of God just kind of being okay with whatever it is that we want to do like Jesus is going to come along our journey not us coming along his but I want you to I want you to see something in this text that whenever Jesus sees something he sees something in people's lives he's able to see through here's the deal Jesus is able to see through the facade of our lives down to what is first place and for every individual that's a little bit different right Consider something with me when in, in, the, in the text. It's so amazing, right? The first person that comes to Jesus says, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. And Jesus says, go home and think about it. <laughs> the last person that comes to Jesus says, I'm gonna follow you. Jesus says, but, but let me go home and think about it. And Jesus says, no, you gotta come. <laughs> it's, it's, see, it's different because he can see through each individual to what is first place in their life. And whenever Jesus sees something, he says something. And in our day and time, he says it by the power and presence of the person of the Holy Spirit who brings conviction over sin in our lives. 
over other sources of identity. When Jesus sees something, he says something. There's a great old hymn. It was written by a lady named Ellen Gora. And it was redone by a contemporary artist called Sandra McCracken. She did it on an album several years ago of old hymns, and it's called In the Secret of His Presence. And I want you to consider how she couches this truth in these words in that hymn. When she says, only this I know, I tell him all my doubts, my griefs, and fears. In other words, I come before him with everything that burdens me, everything that weighs me down, everything that brings me anxiety, everything that I'm grieving over, I bring it to him. And then she says, oh, how patiently he listens, and my sorrowed soul he cheers. I bring all these things to Jesus, and he brings me up, he lifts me up, he gives me peace, he gives me joy, he gives me comfort in the midst of all of my difficult circumstances. But then she says this, oh, how, I'm sorry, do you think he never reproves me? What a false friend he would be if he never, never told me of the sin which he must see of the sin which he must see. In other words, do you think Jesus would be a true friend? Do you think Jesus would be a true faithful friend if he never spoke about what he saw? He says what he sees in our lives. And that happens as the spirit comes and brings conviction because Jesus looks at Proverbs 27, five, where it says better is open rebuke than hidden love. And Jesus is not like a politician who says, I approve this message, right? But Jesus says, not, not only I approve it, right, but I apply it. Because when Jesus shows up and as you begin to set your feet on the path and follow after him, he begins to bring things to the surface that you've never seen before in your life. He begins to press hard on areas of your life. But he does so, I want you to consider something with me. He does so, he says what he sees because he's a true friend, but he also says what he sees out of love because he knows what it looks like to really be human. And he knows when you're building your identity around comfort, or you're building your identity around security, or you're building it around approval, you're becoming less and less and less human. And whenever you say no to those things and you side with, man, when you side with Jesus against yourself, like we said a few weeks ago, and you continue to follow him even whenever it cuts against the grain of what feels natural, normal, and comfortable in your life. He does it out of love. See, there's one more place in the Gospels I wanna point you to where Jesus sees through the facade of somebody's life to what is first and then says something. It's in Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, there's a rich young man who comes to Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher, Right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, Jesus, what do I gotta do to get into heaven? Jesus, what do I have to do to live forever? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know the commandments, right? Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And the man looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, I've done all these things from the time of my childhood since I was young. I've kept all these things. And Jesus looks at him. And in Mark 10, 21, it's an amazing statement. It says, Jesus looks at him and loves him and says to him, go and sell everything that you have and give all the proceeds to the poor and you come follow me. And the text goes on to say, and the man went away sad because he had great possessions. 
See, Jesus looks through the facade, he sees what is first and he says it. But the text doesn't say this, Jesus looked at him and loathed him and then beat him up, right? That's not what it says. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him and out of his mercy he says what he says to make this man more human and form him into his image. See, Jesus does not say what he says with malicious intent, with merciful intent. He's not trying to harm you, he's trying to heal you. So Jesus says what he sees. So he's able to see through the facade of my life and yours, to see what is first, and then he says something about it. Not to make you worse, but to make you better, not to hurt you, but to heal you. That's good news. You know that? That's good news. Now listen, as we close this morning, I wanna, I wanna give you a couple of practical things to do with this. And the first one is this. Discipleship is a journey. Here's what I want you to know. that You were never intended to journey alone. You were never intended to journey alone. Right, there are many in our culture who are like, man, I'm just like, I'm gonna ride, me and Jesus, we're gonna ride this thing out. Right? I've been hurt by people in the church before. I hadn't found a place that I can connect. I don't, I, don't, I don't know where I fit. So me and Jesus, we're just gonna ride this thing. I love Jesus, not sure about the church, but I love Jesus. Jesus doesn't intend it for, for it to work that way. That's why when you read the rest of the New Testament, you see over and over and over again when Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are to one another each other. We were to love one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, be, be, be merciful to one another. We we're to spur one another on toward love, good deeds, loving good deeds, encourage one another, correct one another, reprove one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another. All these things happen in the context of a body life in the life of a local church. You weren't intended to journey alone. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't go to Peter and say, Peter, come and follow me. And it's gonna be me and you, bud. We're just gonna ride this thing out. Peter, you're gonna be my right-hand man and we're just gonna be, me and you, we're just gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna change the world, Peter. Is that what he does? No, he grabs 11 other dudes along with Peter and says, hey, come follow me. And his innermost circle isn't even just one man, it's three. Because you and I were not intended to follow Jesus by ourselves. We're intended to be connected in community. And listen, here at Redeemer, one of, the thing, one of the ways that we help people connect in community is through our life groups that meet in homes, in different places, in different times throughout the week. We have folks who are meeting down in poetry on Thursday nights. We have folks who are meeting between Royce City and Fate on Wednesday nights. We have another group meeting in Fate on Tuesday nights. We have another group meeting um, uh, on Sunday afternoons in, in Rockwall, splitting the time between Rockwall and Fate. Another group on, on Sunday afternoons that's kind of getting launched over in Rowlett, between Rowlett and Fate. Right, so we got places where folks are gathering around God's word and gathering around Christian fellowship and community to encourage one another. And listen, if, if you're looking at your life and you're going, you know what, I've, I, this following Jesus stuff, right, I, I'm not sure that I see the kind of change, I'm not sure that I see the kind of growth, I'm not sure that I see the kind of transformation in my life that I read about in the Bible, a part of that, listen, is because maybe you've been trying to do it by yourself. Because there's nobody else looking into your life and saying what they see under the Conviction of the Spirit as well. So you're not, you're not intended to journey alone. If you have questions about life group, come find us afterwards in room five.
or right back here at one of these booths and we'd love to direct you to a place close to you where you can begin to plug in and get to know folks and let them get to know you. Open your life up to them, open their lives up to you and you can begin to encourage, admonish one another and rebuke one another when it's necessary. Correct one another. Spur one another onto a loving good. You begin to see change and transformation as you follow Jesus and respond to what he says in your life. Second thing, not only were you not intended to do it alone, but listen, you need to learn to preach the gospel to yourself. Right? You need to learn to look in the mirror in the morning when you wake up and say, I'm a scrub on scholarship. That's what I am. I had nothing to impress God. I didn't earn my way into his presence, but he, by his grace, chose me, set his affection on me, brought me to himself in a relationship with him. And out of that comes me saying no to myself and yes to him. Out of that comes this idea of not serving myself but serving him, taking up my cross daily, of exercising repentance and faith, turning from sin to believe that what God says is better than what I think, and then ordering my life around his mission and seeing that God wants to use those whom he has rescued from the waters of judgment as tools to rescue others from the waters of judgment. And so I'm gonna say no to my comfort. I'm gonna say no to my, my temporal security. I'm gonna say no to seeking human approval. I'm gonna, because that's not who I am anymore. I'm not a comfort-craving, convenience-loving American. <laughs> I'm a Christian being conformed to the image of Christ. And my security's in him, not in any inheritance or career. So I'm gonna follow him. Preach the gospel to yourself. Third, third, agree with what God says. Agree with what, uh, I'm sorry, agree with God about what he sees and says. You know, in, in older literature and, and language, it was called confession. So whenever God begins to put his finger and he begins to say what he sees in your life, what's first place in your life, you agree with him about that. And you come before him in confession. You live in this rhythm of confession. Uh, or, or conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and you confess. Right? Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and you confess. And conviction comes on Wednesday from the Holy Spirit and you confess. And on Thursday you confess. And you go to God with those things as opposed to trying to conceal them from him like he doesn't know. Right? He's got x-ray vision. Okay? He sees all things. But not only do you confess to him, but the Bible says confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And again, some of you have not, perhaps maybe some of you have not yet been released from areas of addiction or areas of, 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 of sin struggles in your life because you're just keeping it all in and you never vocalize it with anyone else who can come alongside to encourage and to hold you accountable. Agree with God about what he sees and says. And then finally, finally, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Because it's, it's not just confession, it's turning from that. Brian talked to us a lot about that last couple of weeks ago. And here's what I want to follow up on that with by saying is this. I want to give you a few examples of what bearing fruit and keeping with repentance looks like. Whenever Jesus shows up in your life and he says something about the way that you use your finances only in ways that benefit yourself, when he says something about that, then repentance actually looks like, right? you confess it and agree with God about it, but repentance actually looks like you beginning to reorder your finances in ways that you begin to give sacrificially and systematically and cheerfully. 
That's what bearing fruit and keeping with repentance looks like. When Jesus shows up and he says something about the lust in your life, right? Then, then bearing fruit and keeping with repentance is you agree with him about that and then you say, you know what? I'm gonna turn from that. I'm gonna turn to Jesus. I'm gonna begin to burn the bridges that used to fuel those thoughts and images in my mind. I'm gonna burn the bridges back to them. Right through accountability apps on uh, on my phone, through right, right maybe getting rid of a smartphone, right, whatever it takes to kind of burn that bridge for you to cease to fuel those thoughts in your mind. That's what it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or when Jesus shows up and he gives put a finger on uh, your your desire for comfort and convenience in your life. That's what you built your identity on. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance and turning from that. Right, and you and you do so. As you, as you turn from building your identity around one who is seeking the approval of others and seeking security, and you begin to demonstrate your love and your loyalty to Jesus in front of family, in front of friends, in the way that you conduct yourself. And sometimes that means even choosing fam- your, 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 your uh, church family over your biological family. For some of you, that's what it will look like. That's why Jesus says in, in the Gospels, he says, listen, my mother and brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. So don't do it alone. Preach the Gospel to yourself. Agree with God and bear fruit in those areas that he places his finger. But even that's not enough. Because then you'll still go out of here and go, man, I got a lot of work to do. But I want you to see that it's been done. It's been done for you. It's, it's funny in that text, you got a couple of turn and burn guys, right, John and James? Whenever the Samaritans reject Jesus, they're like, turn and burn, we're gonna call down fire, right? We're gonna rain it down on them right now, Jesus, we're gonna take care of this. And Jesus rebukes them, says no. Why does Jesus do that? If you fast forward on Luke's gospel to Luke chapter 12, listen to what he says. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 50, he says, I've come to cast a fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. See, listen, Jesus, Jesus was already baptized, right? John, the Jordan River, the spirit came down on the dove, the father says, it's my son whom I'm well pleased, listen to him, all that's already taken place. What baptism is he talking about? It's a different baptism than the one that already took place at the Jordan River. It's one that would take place at the cross of Calvary. Jesus says, a fire is coming. I've come to kindle it. I've come to cast it. But Jesus says, don't cast it on them because it's gonna be cast on me. That's why I wish it were here. I wish it were done because I know what that fire is gonna mean for me and I know what that baptism is gonna mean for me because you see, Jesus doesn't just say what he sees. He suffers for it as well. He suffers for what he has seen in your life and in mine. That's why we who are scrubs can be on scholarship. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we thank you for your compassion and mercy. As we sang earlier, God, it is new every morning for us. And that, God, your intention is to heal us, not to harm us. God, your intention is, is, is to move towards us in compassion because you love us, not because you want to destroy us, because you loathe us that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to save it because the world already stands condemned, but Jesus came to rescue us out of it. 
Father, would you make us the kind of people who follow you, who follow your son, who don't say, hold on, let me, let, let me take care of these things first and then I will come and respond to your promptings in my life. Then I'll begin to order my life around your message and your mission. God, would you help us to see, because God, I know you see those areas that are actually first in our lives. Help us to see those, whether it be through the ministry of a local body, whether it be through your word as we come in contact with it through sermons, through podcasts, through our own personal reading. God, whether it be in conversations with friends at a, at a coffee shop or in a Sunday morning service, would you show us those areas in our lives in which you, we've clung to things that are, we've made first place for us and that you're not above all, but there are some things that we want you to play second chair to. Would you show us that? That you might heal us and make us more and more human conforming us into the image of your son as we follow him on his journey to the cross that we would die to ourselves to serve him instead of ourselves that we would deny ourselves to side with him against ourselves Father whatever has been first place in our lives may we lay them down this morning as we lift up your son, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.